Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Future Future. Joining me today is Tim Delucre, the Director of Operations at the Blue Lab, and we are going to be talking about the future of progressive campaigning in American politics. Tim, hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. I am super excited to be here. Well, very excited to have you here. So let's just jump straight into this. Um, since I'm an amazing researcher for these podcasts, the Blue Lab describes itself on its website... Um, <laughs> as a political incubator that is revolutionizing progressive uh, political campaigns and the next generation of candidates and campaigners. So what does this mean? What is the Blue Lab? Uh, and what, are, what on earth is going on? Yeah, to be, um, credit to your research skills, that's really all that's out there. Uh, the opportunity is so unique. And whenever you know, we're talking to new folks who want to join the team or new candidates, it always requires a good bit of explanation. Um, but yeah, to take it from the top, uh, you know, there was a problem that was thought to be solved. The problem is, if you're trying to get campaign experience as a young person, there are plenty of doors to be open. The unfortunate part is behind those doors is just like endless making phone calls to random voters, knocking on doors when we're not in a pandemic. Uh, you know, good skills to have, but skills you can learn in like 48 hours and be pretty good at. Um, so what the Blue Lab sought to do was to, you know, expand the depth of experience that a student could have. In an industry in particular, like electoral politics, where you know, you're essentially running a new campaign every two years, you're setting them up like eight months before, you're hiring on staff six months before election day, it, it makes no sense to have to train people for 90 days or whatever, right? You know, to really get to a level of proficiency needed to be on a winning campaign. So what the Blue Lab tries to do is provide students with an in-depth in education to campaign politics uh, well in advance of being a professional staffer. That way, when they go on to work on campaigns, uh, they're starting a leg up, a huge leg up. And, you know, <laughs> the eventual goal is to have Republicans saying, where did the Democrats get all these amazing staffers that are 24 years old and are like working <laughs> Senate campaigns in swing states and whatnot, right? And so that's the goal, or at least that's part of the goal. Um, the other part of the goal stemmed from that, which is if we're going to be training all these really bright students to be working on campaigns and if they're getting really good at it, uh, we might as well put that bandwidth to good use. And so we work for candidates who have been historically disadvantaged and underrepresented in U.S. electoral politics, which, you know, as I'm sure plenty of your view viewers know, is uh, is pretty much every group that's not like an old <laughs> white guy. Um, so we work for a ton of first-time candidates, female candidates, minority candidates, uh, candidates with disabilities. I think, you know, even today we see like a horribly low number of elected officials uh, have had experience living with disabilities. And that's, you know, it, it's shocking to me that that's like a new frontier of a group that we're trying to get elected and it's 2020. So we're, you know, we're taking all this bandwidth that we're essentially creating and we're putting it to good use. And it creates this ecosystem where folks are working on the campaigns, they're learning from the campaigns, mm -hmm. they're learning from the staff at the Blue Lab and they're enhancing the campaigns. And, it, and it's cyclical. Um, you know, when you're working for a first time candidate, it's a lot of, you know, town and city and state races, um, which is where everybody gets started. Right. And so, mm -hmm. you know, Barack Obama started on a state Senate campaign and I was reading his new book the other day. And the way he describes it is like three people in a room smoking a bunch of cigarettes being like, don't worry about policy, Barack. And, and you know, shockingly, like that's the level of bandwidth these all, all these campaigns have Sounds to like deal fun to me. It, you know, it sounds like a good time. <laughs> it, I'm, I'm shocked he won. But, um, you know, the Blue Lab is trying to add another layer of depth to first-time mm -hmm. campaigns so they can look like the ones that, you know, have the advantages of 
of old money and of old connections. So let's talk about some of the success stories uh, of the Blue Labs. You know, when you go onto the website, some of the names that come up are Tram Nguyen, Seth Moulton, Andy Vargas. When you, when you look back, what are some of the, I guess, uh, the best examples of sort of the Blue Labs success uh, in, in campaigning elections? Yeah, so I'll, I'll, I'll go with a recency bias here just because it's like some of the races that are more fresh in my mind. But, um, you know, we see this all over the state. And we're in Massachusetts mostly. We're working on expanding other places, which I know we'll talk a little bit about later. Um, but in Massachusetts, which is a blue state, a Democratic state, a liberal state through and through, uh, less than 30% of elected officials are women. This is insane, right? I mean, you know, it's a state that really prides itself on leadership and representation and yet we have this horrible statistic and so it's anything but funny but funny i guess is the word we use when you know we're working with a candidate who is running for a district where they would be like the first woman to ever represent the district or maybe you know maybe the first black american to represent a majority black district or something like that and so Mm -hmm. you know again we'll go with recency bias um brandy fluker oakley is a candidate we worked with this past cycle Brandy was a practicing lawyer, you know, a former teacher. She's whip smart, just a complete technocrat. After we got out of our first meeting with her, we were like, this woman sounds like Elizabeth Warren. Like she has a plan for everything. She's phenomenal. She's detail oriented. Um, And so she was running for state rep uh, in, you know, it's a few areas and we won't drill too much into it, but uh, a Southern area of Boston uh, in a majority black district. And it had always been represented by a white person. Um, the former rep to his credit was quite good. Um, and the one before him to his discredit was very corrupt uh, and actually found ways to kind of realign the district so that okay, gerrymandering to get more white people in it. Right. Um, so these races, no matter how small, take on a really deep historical context, right? You know, mm-hmm. Brandy was able to win the race, which she was, and we'll talk a little bit about how exciting that was and whatnot. Um, she's going to be the first black woman to represent a district that is majority black. And it's insane that it takes mm-hmm. so long to get to these things. And the reality, reality of it is there are just so many barriers for first-time candidates. Can you raise money? That stops most people. Over 90% of candidates lose, right? Keep that in mind. Mm-hmm. Um, can you raise money? That's always hard. Can you talk to the right people? There's such a hesitation to support new people in politics in general. You don't want to, to upset the decision makers. If it's in a primary, I think, which should I explain primary or is that? I think we're fine. Commenting? Awesome. <laughs> um, if it's in a primary, I think people are often, you know, up for saying, we'll let the party figure it out. Uh, we'll let the party voters figure it out and then we'll just support whoever it is that we think is going to win the general. And none of this is useful to enacting actual change, right? This is all just people uh, betting on the winner when the outcome is already decided, right? Um, So with Brandy, we put in a ton of effort to try and help her raise money. Um, And to her credit, she is a prolific fundraiser and did a phenomenal job. And a lot of that is just in her pitch. Mm -hmm. I think in one conversation with her, as we found, uh, you can tell she's going to be great at the job. And so, you know, identifying that kind of talent and then putting as much bandwidth as we can behind it with no reservation for, you know, are we going to upset anybody if we do this? Are there any, you know, political decision makers and power holders that are going to be like, hey, stop, we don't care. (laughs) And because that is what stops so many of these campaigns from getting off the ground is, is, you know, just the slightest bit of the powers that be don't want this. And so we can't do it. That's, that's the, that's okay. the most recent one that's really on my mind. I'm uh, happy to expand on more, but. Uh, sure. So, um, talk about like, sort of the, the barriers to entry there and, and getting over, you know, getting over these initial challenges for someone who's brand new in this. 
what you know in the day-to-day practice what practically does the blue lab do is it just like having more boots on the ground or is it you know building infrastructure from the ground up what is the sort of process that that, that, you know the team goes through yeah so there's kind of the deal that's made when a candidate hires the blue lab and that's that you know they're committing to the blue labs mission right which is to give students experience beyond your traditional like door knocking and phone banking Mm -hmm. and again i don't want to belittle those things they are essential to winning campaigns especially local races where you need like 900 votes to win making 1800 phone calls means a lot in that instance (laughs) That said, you know, part of the deal is that they're going to be providing us with, you know, interesting tasks, things that will prepare the students to be actual staffers in the future, not just volunteers. And so it can really range. There are four buckets, essentially, we operate under. So we're talking communications, uh, fundraising, field, and political outreach. Those are the four um, umbrellas, so to speak, under which we do all sorts of things. So to really briefly touch into them, it's really whatever a given candidate wants. Sometimes we'll do all fundraising. Sometimes we'll do a little bit of everything. Sometimes people will come to us and say, I think I'd make a great elected official. You know, we agree. They say, <laughs> I don't even know how to file papers to run for office. And this is so good. Like, it's not like an easy thing to just know off the top of your head. So in instances like that, we'll really do the whole campaign. Um, but to dive into the buckets a little bit, you know, fundraising, this is like, you know, a lot of data, a lot of who do we expect we'll give to the campaign. Um, you know, digging up contact info, preparing candidates to ask for money. I will never run for office in my life. And that is because, and I think this is why most people decide not to. The first thing you have to do is like call your family members and ask if they'll give you a bunch of money that, you know, they may or may not have. And that is so awkward. And so it's a big, you know, kind of mental support session for the candidate a lot of, a lot of the time too, that what you're doing is okay. It's normal. Um, so that's fun. That's fundraising, a ton of research, a ton of helping candidates just have enough to do things, right? The other part is field. Um, field is a lot of tracking your volunteers, you know, building out walk maps, stuff like that. Everything that like when volunteers show up to knock on doors or make phone calls, somebody has gone through and decided who are the people whose doors we're going to knock on, whose phones we're going to call. Mm-hmm. That's kind of higher level strategy stuff, you know, stuff that if you want to get into political consulting or something like that, that's stuff you would know. So we do a lot of that. Um, Communications is my favorite. That's like writing press releases, doing people's social media accounts, um, crafting the narrative of the campaign in general, um, you know, writing any kind of remarks, etc. And there's a lot of like the boring details that go into it, but the crafting the narrative is really cool. And then political outreach, which is like, who do you need to talk to to be successful in a given district? Uh, you know, who can we put you in touch with? Who are some good friends to have? Who are some good endorsements to go after? And all of this stuff, you know, it's not something you can Google, which I think is a bummer uh, for a lot of first-time candidates, is that you need to have your foot in the door to be mm-hmm. able to even know what I just said. And it's maddening to me because <laughs> it's not hard to know. Um, it's just stuff that, you know, people aren't circulating around. And so what we're trying to do is get more people armed with the information they need. You mentioned, you know, so people will come to you of, you know, not without any knowledge of uh, how to get into the political system, how to file these forms, for example. Do, do you know cases where, you know, not only has someone come to you without the political processing knowledge, but even the knowledge of how to operate like a social media account, you know, something like, or even how to make an attractive website that people will be able to search. Had someone come to you with just such a high barrier to entry that they don't even understand these sorts of things? Oh yeah, hundred percent. I mean, <laughs> that's like, it's almost the most common thing that people actually kind of contract us out for. Um, or have us help out with is, mm-hmm. hey, I, you know, I've been trying to put together a Facebook page, it has seven likes, and I have no idea how to get to eight, let alone mm-hmm. like the 2000 I want to end up at. And so, you know, 
these are things that young people are just really inherently good at. And, and that's not to say there's not like also a deep science and logic behind it because there is. Um, but, you know, it's so appealing, I think, to these candidates who for the first time are like, like, I've never built a website before. I mean, not until I was at the Blue Lab, at least, right? Um, mm -hmm. But there was a lot of training involved in that. And so when you run for office and someone's like, oh, is your website up and running? There is no correlation whatsoever between somebody who would be a good policymaker and somebody who can build a good website. And mm -hmm. it's not it's not criticism. <laughs> it's just completely different disciplines. And so you shouldn't have to worry about that as a candidate, right? As a candidate, you should worry about three things. Talking to voters. It does not involve building a website. <laughs> Raising money, which is a bummer. And I wish we had different laws, so that wasn't a big deal. Um, and then the third is what you're going to do when you're in office, right? Those are the three things you should worry about. You should not be worrying about how to code on WordPress. You should not be worrying about like Facebook's algorithm. You should not be worrying what about hashtags to put on my tweets. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. This is all stuff that, you know, someone who's close to the campaign, politically interested, can do. And that's where we find a lot of our young folks have a huge advantage is that they enjoy thinking about these things. They're really good at thinking about these things. And it's not simple. Um, Ed Markey was a Senate candidate in Massachusetts. Our, our parent company worked for him. We didn't, but he mm -hmm. won a really intense primary election. Um, and and his, his social media game was so commendable. Yeah. And a lot of it just seemed crazy out there. There were accounts like ketchup bottles for Ed Markey, which created this the Markyverse, as they called it, which was pretty much a series of memes that got a ton of young people interested. And their volunteer base by the end of the campaign, when it mattered, was huge because so many college students, high school students, people at the time to make phone calls were interested because that was a campaign that spoke to young people. So it's not easy. <laughs> it's not as simple as making ketchup bottles for candidate X, <laughs> but there's a middle ground to be found. And they were able to do that. I think I think we've cracked it. I'm just gonna I'm just gonna spam I'll a bunch it. of Twitter accounts. Make you president of worlds, and it's gonna work. Uh, no, <laughs> so, so I think um, obviously in you know, the blue lab, it, it's you know the majority is comprised of students. How different is the blue lab from like traditional campaign groups? You know, we have, you know what really makes the blue lab stand out from you know your your more I guess traditional um, campaign groups that people might turn to. I would say it's a completely different offering. Um, you know, so our parent company is a political consulting firm, um, and they're not competition because we work <laughs> together, but even in that sense, um, you know, the rates you have to pay for an American political consultant is very high. And, and a lot of that comes with a lot of logic. These are people who bill at high hours because they're very good at what they do. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's all great. But if you're running for state representative in Massachusetts, you know, it's your first time you're going to raise like $40,000 you're probably not paying $5,000 a month for a consultant, right? Because that won't even last the whole race, let alone <laughs> allow you to do anything. Mm -hmm. So what the Blue Lab is, is it's part consulting because, you know, we certainly have industry professionals on staff who can help with stuff, but those industry professionals are in the background. And that's what justifies the very low cost of candidates for the Blue Lab is it's student interfacing. So you're buying, you know, you're purchasing a ton of bandwidth for a very low rate and ingenuity and innovative ideas, right? When the pandemic hit, we were in the middle of a signature collecting process in the U.S. to get on the ballot. One of our candidates needed a thousand signatures for a race mm -hmm. that like nobody really pays much attention to. And it's very hard to do non-pandemic times. Uh, you pretty much just camp out at like Democratic town meetings and whatnot. You're like, hey, please. And, you know, you get to your a thousand right by the finish line. Mm -hmm. We couldn't even be outside and talk to people to do it. And so the advantage the Blue Lab has is, you know, 
in times where weird things come up and weird things come up all the time in the realm of politics, <laughs> they're not kind of trapped by like this old way of thinking. The old mm-hmm. way of thinking is very valuable very often. There's no denying that. Uh, you know, but there's a bend towards innovation, which is nice. And so with our candidate, we, you know, brainstormed up this whole process where we're going to mail people individually, the signature seat sheets, follow up call, beg them, all that. Um, and it worked. We got well over a thousand signatures. Um, you know, and other campaigns did this for sure. But I also heard other people say, it might not look like you're able to run this year. And that would have been a terrible call, <laughs> not for this candidate in particular, but for another who needed the same number of signatures mm-hmm. that I'm kind of thinking back to. But, um, you know, you got to try something new at a certain point, right? Mm-hmm. If every consultant is using the same ideas on every side, it's hard to break out. <laughs> Generally, um, you know, we've gone into this a bit, like the, the, the campaigns the Blue Lab focused on, you know, are highly localized. So, you know, anything from like state Senate to... 11th district fire council or whatever um or like I mean, <laughs> the, catchers, the, yeah, the we usually <laughs> use yeah um how difficult is it to navigate so many different and highly specific uh you know campaigns how how difficult is it to sort of navigate these very different environments in in, in campaigning yeah I, I think that's a good question so there are kind of a few things you have to ask yourself when you're running for a different seat and how much has it changed the campaign the core components of it do not change much. You're trying to raise as much money as you can so you can talk to enough, um, as many voters as you can to give your pitch, which is as good as it can be. That is at like mm-hmm. the, <laughs> yeah. none of that was helpful, but it made sense level of what you have to do on a campaign. Sure. Right? Um, <laughs> you have to win. Yeah. It's still the same. Don't worry. <laughs> you have to get more votes than the other. I'm not sure if you've heard, but um, <laughs> right. That's what you're trying to do. And those principles apply across every race and they actually guide a lot of what you do. Um, there are things that are kind of hyper-localized that change that. If you're running for the school committee, nobody cares what you think about access to abortion or like some hot ticket national <laughs> issue. If you're running, actually, this is a bad one. I was going to say if you're running for city council, nobody cares about your views on global climate change. It's actually not true anymore. Um, now, you know, mm-hmm. there's bike lanes, there's incentives yeah. to, for less cars to be on the road, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So I guess like foreign policy. Foreign policy, great. Yeah, if you are running for state rep in Massachusetts, you have no say in that kind of stuff, right? So there are certain issues that will guide what you're doing. Um, There's also kind of like a legislative position versus an executive position, right? If you're running for a legislative position, your job is to be an organized, professional, and very smart advocate, right? Because you're trying to get people to sign onto your agenda and create a movement within the elected body to pass something. If you're running for like mayor or, you know, the blue lab doesn't do governor campaigns, but if gubernatorial, but if we did, mm-hmm. if you're running for governor, it's an executive position. You're trying to show that you can manage. Right. And that's a little different than having, you know, mm-hmm. this awesome intense agenda. Um, so those are kind of the, the things you're distinguishing. The biggest thing is the district. I mean, that is, especially with local races, when you zoom in to a ward seat in a town where, you know, 1600 people are going to vote if there's even like one company in that town that employs a thousand people like you know we're racing braintree and this didn't happen but we what could have i suppose is one of our candidates worked at the dunkin donuts corporate office and so <laughs> like this office that employed so many people right and so it, it didn't get to this my point is you know 
mm-hmm. if yeah. 80 of your constituents work for the same company, you're all of a sudden even like looking at a different thing. You're talking about different issues, right? <laughs> all of this is affected, especially in these hyper-local races. If everybody's at the same train station in one district, you're talking about that train station, right? And that we actually see a ton here in Massachusetts because our transportation, mm-hmm. transportation infrastructure leaves a lot to be desired to say the least, though we don't notice much anymore because nobody goes to work. So <laughs> <laughs> how how difficult is it um to, to try and sort of like as an outside, I guess, campaigning force to almost like break into these communities. You know, some of them are, are so small it's like only a thousand people voting. Is I don't know, maybe this is a bit of a British person looking at America view, but like I I I have to admit I see every small American town as like an Amish like village. Um <laughs> that is that, that is my that is my view. No, but like how difficult it is to sort of um really get an understanding for what people care about on the ground, you know, particularly, I guess, in the COVID age, yeah. we can't literally canvas. <laughs> That's the, yes, that is actually the perfect question. Um, a quick anecdote about the Amish towns. Um, <laughs> uh, when I was a, a sophomore in college, my friend and I for spring break wanted to do something we wouldn't forget. That was our only, our only barrier, which is terrible. <laughs> do not make <laughs> that your only criteria. So we walked from our houses, which is in the eastern part of Massachusetts, all the way to the university that's like in the westernmost part. It was like, I forget, 50, some, 70 something miles. I don't know. It took us like three days. Mm-hmm. But to your point, we walked through a lot of towns that made me think, I didn't even know these existed. In Massachusetts, like one of the more densely populated states. <laughs> I like, wow. I, I couldn't even pretend to think about what the 350 people of this town like are particularly interested in, mm-hmm. right? It's a bizarre thing. And to your point, we can't really canvas. So that removes a lot of it because what you hear on the doors is kind of what you're generally using as your baseline. Um, And then all scientific options are are out the door, right? Polling, at least, you know, where we're from, polling runs you at quite the cost, like one very good poll. And I actually think they're worth it. I think that any candidate who's raising enough money to pay for them Mm-hmm. Absolutely should. I know polling is under a lot of fire right now. I am here as a fierce defender of polling. Um, this is one of the things I'm more passionate about. Um, but polling is super expensive. Again, if you're raising 30 grand for the whole campaign, you are not spending half to two thirds of your budget mm-hmm. on a thing that's going to tell you how to contact the voters that you can't afford to reach out to anymore. <laughs> right. So, you know, you're not doing this for like mm-hmm. races you're not raising a lot. And so you don't know what people are thinking, which is why it's important that you know, while the Blue Lab is doing work in the background and is supporting the campaign, it is the candidate and a local team that really knows best how to talk to the community, especially people who have been in the community for a long time. We were working a race uh, in one of the, it's technically Boston proper, but it's a neighborhood. It has like a different name. Um, we are like, what, what do people care about? And they were debating whether or not we should do a poll because this race was raising a bit more money. Um, and one of the staffers were like, I've lived here for 30 years people just think rent's too high and that they can't get to work on time. And that was absolutely correct. It was the winning message. It was the only two things people cared about. And that's what you'll find a lot around the city here. Um, But again, you're really relying on like community leaders. You're going to listening sessions. You're going to democratic town meetings. Uh, A lot of these really hyper local races will have like a single issue. That's a huge deal, right? Because there's like one new development in town that's the only news there's been in 36 months (laughs) and so you know that's your wedge issue and so you want to be on the right side of that or at least be able to defend your position on it 
when when going into one of these sort of campaigns you know you, you bring up polling there and and you know how much you love it um what <laughs> how i've got i've got a flatmate you would you would love to talk to um <laughs> uh, <laughs> shout out to matt um Speaking of, you should check out the podcast that's going to be in the corner of the screen right now. We talked about the election. It's about polling entirely. Anyway, no. Um, so when, when going into one of these sort of, you know, localized campaigns, what is the balance between um, the, like, the, the numbers, the stats, the demographics that you see, and the sort of, I guess, like the feeling or the, you know, the knowledge of a local community or sort of going, well, this is what they might care about. You know, how is, how is, how difficult is it to sort of balance these two where you're like, well, numbers wise, we should be doing this, but then the candidate says, Oh, trust me, this is where to go. Yeah. So these are the moments where you try and talk the candidate out of whatever strip. If it's a policy position, right? Like if we find out that, you know, what's what's it is 75% of people in district X don't believe in climate change. That is not a reason for a democratic candidate to be like, yeah, I don't know. It might not be real. <laughs> That's, you know, and, and this was, you know, an optimistic feeling I had hoped was true in electoral politics. And I'm here to confirm that at least for the candidates that we work with, these people who are really here to do well and good by their communities, that is true. If a candidate has a position that is deeply unpopular, you know, you might try and rephrase how you say it so that it's a bit, you know, easier for people to palate. You might, you know, strengthen your argument. Um, mm-hmm. You know, if you're arguing for something that a majority of the district disagrees with, there's not, you know, an impossibility to change people's minds, right? Mm-hmm. And if you are a fierce defender of a position, you stand by it. And so that's how you inform all your policy decision making. You know, there are issues if you believe in 10 things and we find out three of them people are crazy informed on and they love talking about, you're going to focus on those three. That's kind of where, you know, the needle is moved, so to speak. Um, And then, you know, thinking about the other side of the aisle, if there are these intense protests all across the country, hopefully that changes your mind on a given issue. Um, You know, you have to be a good listener at the end of the day. Yes, we're still hoping. Um, But, you know, then, then there's the strategic side of it where it's like, we know that the only thing you should be doing today is knocking on doors. And they're mm-hmm. like, but there's this awesome parade I need to go to. And everyone in town loves it. Like, well, nobody there is registered to vote. This is all hypothetical. By yeah, the way. yeah. But these are moments where you're, you're talking the candidate off the ledge. You're like, do not do that. <laughs> we know it's not the best thing. And it's a balance you have to strike. And this is hard for young people in particular, I think, because, you know, when my boss's boss says something to a campaign, they listen because he's been mm-hmm. doing this for like 40 years. When I say something to a campaign, they sometimes listen because I've been doing this for a few years. But if I said something to a campaign, (laughs) they're like, oh, well, we'll check with a few others. And so it's it's hard. It's a hard conversation to have. Mm -hmm. You know, something uh, a mentor of mine once said was you should you should note every time the candidate says something that, you know, isn't right. Uh, And then you should look back and think, you know, which one should I push the needle on? And then, you know. You've essentially saved up all of your goodwill. You're like, this is the one thing I really think we should do differently. <laughs> um, so you should be very careful about how you say it. Mm-hmm. And there's also the possibility that, you know, we aren't right sometimes, right? There really are instances where someone's like, no, but my community is different. No, no, it's not. And in the end, <laughs> it was. So, you know, a, a lot of this is, is very difficult, again, with the, the availability of data just being not so great. Mm-hmm. How how important, um, you know, obviously the Blue Lab focuses on, you know, helping people who have been traditionally disenfranchised in politics or, you know, are first-time candidates or, you know, um, women, people of color, ETC, uh, disabled people. How important is it to try on, uh, to, to support this sort of, you know, 
um, new wave of candidates? How important is it to really, you know, see this, this outcome? Very. Um, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to be doing work with both the Blue Lab and other organizations. So I've also, I've worked with more establishment candidates before and it, it is much more for priests. <laughs> like we don't have to worry about the X, Y, Z, like, you know, mm. we're kind of just chugging along. Yeah. Um, it's very hard. People are resistant to change. That has been true throughout history. You know, there are moments where like Barack Obama runs for president on the slogan of changing. And that was good for about a, a, a cycle. And then in 2010, Democrats yeah. lost every house seat you can imagine. So it's like, <laughs> you know, there are occasionally these windows where people are open for it, but what you really have to do is make the personal connection. And this is so hard, I think, for a lot of like, you know, candidates with loftier ideas sometimes struggle with, you know, being told that the best thing you can do on a campaign is just like knock on someone's door and like ask how long it's been since the city has addressed the pothole at the top of the street, right? And that's where people are like, this is an issue that's close to me. This is an issue that, you know, if I care about climate change, Again, I should stop using this example because it really is locally important as well, but I'm going to use it for the sake of this example. Um, if I care about climate change, I'm making sure Elizabeth Warren gets reelected, right? I'm not making sure that, you know, my school committee met, right? Like those are just, yeah, sure, sure. Or my town counselor. Um, mm -hmm. For my town counselor, I care that they are accessible. I care that they're transparent. They answer my emails. <laughs> I care that they fix the pothole at the top of my street. Mm -hmm. And that's not to, you know, downplay the role of these local electeds, because while this is how you keep in touch with people, it's pretty much how you retain your seat so you can do like truly interesting stuff, like put in more bike lanes, put in better public transportation, all of these kind of loftier things that take a bit longer. Uh, but you really need to maintain a personal connection with mm -hmm. your constituents. Sure. By far the number one thing. Mm -hmm. So uh, on to now, um, money in politics, uh, especially in America, is pretty much often considered to be one of, if not you know, the, the largest problem in, in, in American politics, in the American political system. Um, I, I'm study, I study, obviously, US politics in the UK, and I think about half our essays are, why, why is the system bad? And the answer is normally money. Um, <laughs> how, how does the Blue Lab, especially you know, at, in such like, small elections, help candidates with this issue? You know, how, 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 how does the Blue Lab sort of support candidates in the monumental task of fundraising? Yeah, uh, so there are kind of two ways to look at it. Uh, there's, you know, sort of the question you're asking, and I'll get into it, which is, why is this so, like, awful? And why does it create so many barriers? And mm -hmm. why are we still doing it? <laughs> That's, you know, the first way you can look at it. The second way, which we're kind of forced to look at it through is campaign finance law isn't going to change during the course of this campaign I'm on right now. So I have to work within the rules. I have to mm -hmm. figure out how to do that in a way that, you know, maybe it's not superior to my more well-funded opponent. But maybe it removes a weakness of mine, which I, was I wasn't raising enough money to be viable. Maybe I don't have more money, but I have enough to be viable. Sure. So it, it's tough for local races in particular. If you're Bernie Sanders or Elizabeth Warren, your name recognition nationally, and you know I won't talk about percentages, but like just in terms of raw people who know <laughs> who you are and mm -hmm. can give $5 and like you, you're probably talking about tens of millions of people, right? It's that easy. Joe Biden, mm -hmm. and the total is still climbing, has over 80 million people who voted for him, right? That is a crazy reach. You could ask five bucks from all those people, and you could run a pretty decent campaign. <laughs> um, at the local level, it's different, right? Mm -hmm. You've got like 
you know, use a state rep race, for example, you've got like 9,000 people who are going to vote. You've got like 30,000 people who are in the district. Let's go back to the 9,000 of those 9,000 that are going to vote. 5,000 know who you are. 3,000 have an opinion of you. 2,000 have a favorable opinion. 100 can give money. 20 you can find contact info for, right? So it, it really comes down that quickly. And so in a local race, it's kind of a bummer, but you're pretty much forced to just find, you know, 10 to 50 people who can give you the maximum amount, which in Massachusetts is $1,000 in a calendar year. So within the rules, that's what you have to work with. You're never going to create a big enough network that everybody's going to give you 20 bucks and you're going to be okay, mm-hmm. uh, unfortunately, right? Um, it's more just focused on a few big donors, which is the way it is. Um, mm-hmm. But to your other point, is the system corrupt because of money? Yes, right? And I think there's so much transparency around this now. You have to report everybody who donates to you, what industry they work for, if it's over a given amount. Um, and all of this helps, you know, is it worth taking 10 million from fossil fuels in a presidential election if all of your opponents can then say you take like is that a 10 million dollar mistake mm-hmm. right these are questions we're getting closer to being able to ask um that said until you know more people are paying attention to your campaign finance records it's always worth it to take the <laughs> donation and so that that's when things mm-hmm. get a little sticky and it's not so much that you're taken into a room with a bunch of fossil fuel executives and they're like hey we have this money. We're going to give it to you as long as you say climate change mm-hmm. isn't real. Even Most though we both know that's wrong. Like Cartier pie. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's, it's more like, you know, you're careful about the way you talk about things. You're not pushing to move the needle because you'd rather rely on that money than whatever issue. And mm-hmm. it's a question of priorities. It is in a lot of ways why the system is corrupt. A lot of decisions are made just based on the next campaign. And it doesn't always have to do with money, but people are more focused on how their legislative record will be used against them in the campaigns than how their legislative record will be reflected in the community. Right. And that's where you get into trouble. And that's why we like our candidates because they haven't been like, you know, <laughs> exposed and you know, drained by the swamp, so to speak for, for years, you know, they have fresh perspectives and ideas they want to capitalize on. Mm-hmm. So we've sort of, we've got a lot into sort of, you know, the model of the blue lab, what it does and how it does it. How far do you think this concept could go? Do you think this is something that could be, you know, um, expanded across the, you know, the entire country and really start to build a, a stronger sort of grassroots progressive um, campaigning? Uh, you know, how, how far do you think that the, 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 the concept of the Blue Lab could be, could be expanded? Yeah, so there are a few things because so we've been in talks about expanding and we, you know, before COVID, we'd actually opened up in New Hampshire, South Carolina, and we were on our way to Wisconsin office and all of that kind of took a backseat to like you know the world collapsing Mm. and we couldn't really do like the on the ground (laughs) stuff anyway so what we found in that limited experience well there are a few things to look for um the blue lab can essentially be anywhere that there aren't enough democrats or there are enough democrats but poor representation right Mm -hmm. that's thing one uh two there are students around so colleges Boston perhaps has like the biggest advantage we could find in the whole country in terms of like so many colleges being within like 10 square miles that when we were in person, we had no shortage of interns. We got tons of applicants, even when we could only open it to the city of Boston. Now that we're we're remote, that second part is almost less significant. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, we can take people from anywhere. And so there doesn't need to be a college down the street. There just needs to be one on earth. And that's a much bigger place. Um, 
in some communities though, and I think this is where we would want to flesh out, you know, a future expansion is mm -hmm. if we're going to be moving to like Georgia, a hot topic of American politics right now, mm -hmm. like Stacey Abrams said, we don't want people to move to Georgia. And Stacey Abrams is right. If I move to Georgia and I tell someone who's lived in Georgia for 14 years, why I, a guy from Massachusetts <laughs> is telling to vote for a Democrat, that just, it, it does not speak the same vibes. And these mm -hmm. things take years to build. So if you're going to expand elsewhere, you want to be involved with local experts. You want people who, you know, we're here to serve, right? We don't want to come in and say, hey, we're going to Massachusettsify Georgia now. And we're going to do that because we have all this money and we don't care what you think. Like that's, it's more like you got to be listening to people, right? Mm -hmm. You have to be getting in contact with someone in Georgia saying, how can we help? Or how can we build something that you can use to help? Direct us. <laughs> you, you know how to do this. Mm -hmm. We're just here to provide bandwidth. And so, you know, there needs to be a local flavor to it. And that's something we'll sort through as remote makes us less and less local, mm -hmm. which is a good and a bad thing in so many ways. Um, but yeah, I, mm -hmm. <laughs> I would say that's the new, you know, kind of magic we're looking for. Because mm -hmm. you need someone pseudo, you know, at least sort of local. See, that's one thing that I find phenomenally interesting about like American politics is how much every state and even their local districts are so like community focused where it's you know, someone coming from a different state and coming in and saying, maybe you should vote for this person would, is, is ridiculous and, and, and you know, almost insulting. But I almost think that's one of the benefits of the Blue Lab is like, let's say, you know, this was expanded to like so many different universities where students were, you've almost automatically got this strong local, you know, I guess, um, relation because I think like, uh, especially thinking in British politics where it's like there's a real disconnect between your like political elite uh, and your, you know, person who's going to end up voting. Um, and yeah, I think it's just something that the, the Blue Lab has a real like insight into is sort of, well, these are people who've grown up here and live here and understand it rather than, oh, I went to Oxford and or Harvard yeah. and I, I know <laughs> what, you know, gerrymandering is. Look at me. Uh, Harvard, a Harvard degree, actually, despite like every politician in the U.S. having a Harvard degree, actually polls terribly. And if you pay attention to it, <laughs> when candidates have a Harvard degree and are running for office, they don't Amazing. mention it because it just it pisses people off. They're like, Amazing. you think you're better than me? And it's a whole <laughs> thing. But yeah, a Harvard degree, I've yeah. found so far, polls terribly like nationwide nobody wants you with a hard degree. they want you with a hard degree they just don't want you to talk about it yeah that isn't that kind of like the um a little bit like what pete Buttigieg fell into where it was like oh i worked at mckinsey or whatever or like and people were like oh you mean the one that fixed bread prices and he was like no <laughs> allegedly no uh, i have a i have a friend who works at mckinsey in like an entry-level position that I don't know what people just did there, but it was like his entry level thing, right? Like he was like, he's probably like copy pasting PowerPoints to make sure the fonts match. Like, it, <laughs> you know, it, it's the attacks like that that you're like totally vulnerable mm -hmm. to. And even if they're unfair, it's like, well, you kind of set it up yourself. Uh, I mean, hey, on a utilitarian basis, maybe if he'd made those fonts not fonts not match, you know, maybe they wouldn't have gone with the plan. Yada yada. Sabotage. Yeah, Best yeah. Way to make changes from the inside. Oh, yeah. There we go. Blue lab model. Been a big play. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what, what can people expect from the blue lab in the upcoming, well, I guess in, in the upcoming year, you know, obviously COVID has really, um, I guess, um, slowed down or hit sort of the, the election dynamic, but what can people be expecting to see when they follow the socials at the blue lab on Twitter? Continuing uh, the pipeline. Okay. I think, you know, so there are a lot of pipelines in society that exist and most of them are bad, 
right? <laughs> you know, it's just a, a connotation we have at this point. The Blue Lab is essentially trying to create a pipeline from people who would make very good elected officials to elected officials. And somehow in our political system, which has so many rules and laws and history, mm -hmm. that doesn't exist. Like that is just not, <laughs> like nobody cared to address that, that the politicians would be good at what they do, right? So that's what we're trying to do. Find people who represent their communities well and get them into office. So, you know, if you're following the Blue Lab on social, you can expect to see a ton of updates about really fantastic candidates who, you know, the trajectory is long for a lot of these folks, right? When one of our candidates wins, it's usually in some big upset because everyone's like, oh, that candidate has no chance. They're first time. It's they can't raise money. Mm -hmm. What is this blue lab? <laughs> um, who are so these you people? Can expect, yeah. And so when they win, it's news. And when you win and it's news your first time, your trajectory changes a little. It goes a little upwards, right? There are things you can do in the future, moves you can make because you've already established like a status mm -hmm. as somebody who's breaking norms and is breaking boundaries. So you can find a ton of updates about really cool and interesting candidates, uh, you know, people who we hope shape our future. Um, a lot of opportunities to engage with the students too, whether it's, you know, newsletters they're doing or projects they're engaging in or initiatives they're trying to start up. Um, you can also find opportunities to apply and be a part of it. Um, Always love that. <laughs> <laughs> Amazing. Well then, um, Tim, thank you so much for coming on. Um, yeah, if people you. do want to keep up with yourself and the Blue Lab, it's at Delucre Tim uh, on Twitter. That's D-E-L-O-U-C-H-R-E-Y. If I'm good at editing, it'll be on screen now, but sometimes I'm not. Um, no. <laughs> and um, at the Blue Lab on Twitter. And the website is uh, thebluelab.org. I'd recommend everyone to check these out. The links will also be in the description to, uh, to go check that all out. Tim, thanks for coming on. Thank you. Thanks for the plugs. Thanks for the good questions. Best of luck. No problem at all. Thanks, everyone.